The following content is a live panel discussion taken from the second World Tennis Conference in association with the Global Professional Tennis Coaches Association and the Seagal Institute, whose founder, Fernando Seagal, moderated the discussion. If you missed any of the event, you can still sign up to watch exclusive presentations by the likes of Boris Becker, Janko Tipsarevich, Ivan Lubcic, Gilles Savara, Brad Gilbert, Tony Nadal, and many, many more. Simply go to worldtennisconference.com to subscribe. Another live panel talking about what it takes, the development pathway from junior to pro. We have the best coaches right now with us is uh, in our panel, Carlos Goffi. Hi, Carlos. It's a pleasure to be here in this wonderful conference that you put together, Fernando. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have also uh, Gregor Fico from Slovenia, uh, another country which is producing for us good tennis. Thank you, Gregor, to be with us. Hi, everybody. It's been an honor to be together with uh, such a great person in tennis who are uh, developing tennis and also developing uh, persons uh, behind tennis. So uh, it's been an honor and I'm looking forward to learn from you and to be to give you some interesting insight. Definitely. Let me let me let me introduce uh, Carlos. Uh, everybody knows Carlos for many years involved in tennis, but he uh, did many things like for more than 40 years on involving in tennis and also working in real estate. He wrote the bestseller tournament thought, which is a guide from junior tennis championship and with uh, comments from John McEnroe. He was working like a former coach, like John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe and, uh, on the ATP tour. And he was a keynote for many, many different conferences like this one and many uh, USPTA, PTR, USTA, uh, and another very good aspect of Carlos, he was voted the coach of the year uh, by his peers in 1991. Thank you to be with us, Carlos. You, you're gonna, we're gonna share your presentation right now. And you're gonna talk about the roadmap to competitive junior tennis tournament thought online. Thank you very much for the, uh, for the uh, introduction, Fernando. Yes, um, uh, just um, as a little background, uh, the uh, Tournament Tough book was published in 1984 when John was number one in the world. And uh, that was the only reason why it became a big, uh, a bestseller. Uh, due to his involvement, um, you know, uh, uh, if uh, Mac and Roe was not involved in the book, perhaps uh, the book would not be known. But um, it is uh, uh, wonderful uh, to have had his support. And uh, just as a little background, the reason why we were excited about publishing that book in 1984 is because um, uh, him and I were talking about that the books up until that point were more uh, uh, dealing with the technique. Uh, of the game, and uh, John always was a very competitor, a tremendous competitor, and, and we always talked about the possibility of writing something about the 50 minutes of the hour when you're playing a match that you're not hitting the ball, and uh, very few books uh, in tennis ever uh, uh, talked about that very important part of the uh, competition on a tennis court. So um, uh, that is uh, what, what uh, the tennis book was about. And then after all these years, uh, as you know, Fernando, I just launched uh, uh, about a month ago the uh, Tournament of Online, which is basically a course based on that Tournament of Methodology. And the methodology, the root of the methodology, as I said, is uh, dealing with the 50 minutes of the hour of a, a tennis match uh, in which uh, uh, the tactical uh, moves are actually uh, uh, put together by the top competitors. And a lot of junior players do not really utilize those 50 minutes as they should. And uh, they, in those 50 minutes, which is comprised by those 25 seconds in between points and the 90 seconds of a changeovers, um, most of the time, junior players... <laughs> Uh, play what I call a me tennis. They were really more self-absorbed with how they're playing. They're not playing whether their strings are loose or whether it's too hot. And they really fail to, to, to constantly compete with the opposition across the net. And so what we are trying to do here is, uh, is to show the, 
very important um, um, crossroads that a junior player goes through. As you can see, uh, it all has to do with adolescence. So the phase one uh, uh, is the pre-adolescence age group from 10 to 13 years old. That's one kind of tennis that is played. And then after the uh, first phase of uh, uh, the pre-adolescence goes into the phase two, the adolescence, which is when the puberty uh, uh, arrives, the girls sometimes hit this phase at 13 years old, the boys around 14. And that is a phase where the uh, junior player now is playing a tennis game that is much more of an adult tennis game in a game that he can cover or she can cover the court. She, uh, the, the, the player actually has enough uh, uh, strength, physical strength to be able to develop weapons so that they can win points with their weapons and become more of aggressive type of a player. And then following that uh, phase two, you uh, have another runabout in which the uh, player evolves towards the college and beyond. They can be professionals. I am a supporter of uh, junior players to uh, think in terms of college tennis here in America and even uh, foreigners have the opportunity to come in and play college tennis in America. So I, I always believe that um, the, uh, to keep junior tennis in perspective, the goal of a junior player and those that are around the junior player, their support system, should always think in terms of uh, going to college uh, tennis in America prior to attempting to turn uh, professionals. Now, in order to, uh, uh, to develop uh, uh, physical and mental uh, um, components of a, of a junior player, the first thing we need to do is to understand the, the demands of a tennis match in those two areas. And so if you see here, the very first uh, stopwatch, you know, the, when you are actually, actually executing, it's only 10 minutes out of every hour in a match, and that takes mental and physical agility. Then the other 15 minutes, as we were talking about, is the tactical thinking, the competitive thinking. And that takes mental agility because uh, you are constantly thinking about how, what you need to do next. And then of course, a match, two out of three sets actually lasts about an hour and a half and that takes mental and physical endurance. So it's very important for a um, developing junior player to understand what, it, what, it, 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 what are the demands of a tennis match so that that junior player can develop their mental ability and their physical ability accordingly. Uh, prior to uh, the um, phase two, when the player is playing an adult game, um, I usually prescribe for the uh, young juniors uh, to, um, uh, in phase one to play a lot of other sports to develop their physicality and their athletic ability. I also think that team sports in that phase one, it's much more uh, uh, it's much healthier uh, for a developing child to be involved in than the, uh, 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 the game of tennis uh, because of the individuality of the sport puts a lot of pressure on those kids that um, are not physically and emotionally mature yet during that phase one. And of course, when you, the child gets into phase two and has developed physically as well as emotionally, then the, um, uh, the uh, physical development of that player has to be a lot more tennis oriented and, uh, and as I call it, tennis fit, basically. We can see here on the left side what happens in that 50 minutes of the hour uh, during a tennis match. And uh, the first slide on the left side, it's basically the 25 seconds in between points. And I have a sort of a step ladder right here that gives you different levels of what one needs to do during those 25 seconds. So the proper uh, way that a child should start developing that competitiveness should really be not reacting more than three seconds to the last point. This is a sort of a rule that I've had um, in training thousands and thousands of juniors uh, players uh, in my tennis camps is that uh, they, I allow them three seconds to actually react to the last point. 
whether he's positive like uh, Bumos, like a Rafa does, or, or you know, I can't believe I just missed that shot. Whatever the reaction is of the last point has to end in three seconds so that there are 22 seconds ahead for that player to start thinking how to play the next point and be prepared to play the next point. So um, the uh, key to get out of uh, the reaction of the last point is the question. How is the opponent feeling about the last point? That's the very important question that a competitive junior player needs to learn. It's that as soon as that point is over, they will react for three seconds about the last point, and then they got to get out of the last point and start thinking next point. And what it takes them thinking to the next point is basically how the opponent had, is reacting to the last point. That's more important than how they're reacting to the last point. So the opponent can react in three ways, either become confident or become frustrated or maybe neutral because the, um, uh, the last point did not really affect their confidence level. And then once you know the player, the competitor knows the confidence level of the opposition in that fourth second, then the, the player should consider the score. And then with that information, then be prepared to come up with the best tactic uh, for the next point. On this slide on the right side, it basically the steps that one goes through during changeovers between um, um, uh, you know, the, uh, when you change over from one side to the other. Again, the same kind of steps are there and we can talk more about that if anyone wants to ask additional questions about those steps during the changeover. So if we could have the next slide, please. This is another extremely important um, issue in developing a junior player. It's called the aggressive margin. A fellow by the name of Bill Jacobson in the 80s coincided when I was uh, uh, um, publishing my book. He um, started a company called Compute Tennis. It was the very first time that we've had the statistics in the game of tennis. It was in the, in the 80s with Compute Tennis. And he, des he developed a beautiful concept that I still use, and I have used it throughout my years coaching, which is the aggressive margin. The aggressive margin is the sum of winners plus forcing shots that caused errors. So that's the weapons of a player, less their unforced errors. And it's amazing that this concept has not really uh, been given enough credit in, uh, in internationally. And uh, I believe that that's the most important thing for a junior player to understand how to control and manage their game in those 10 minutes that they are executing. Because as I said, during an hour of a match, 50 minutes of the hour, you're not hitting the ball. But the 10 minutes that you are hitting the ball, you need to know how you're performing, how you're managing your game. And uh, for those that can actually learn how to manage their game in those 10 minutes of execution, with this aggressive margin, there is no one that has ever lost a set with a higher aggressive margin than the opposition. That's how important this concept is. So once again, if there are any questions about that, I'll be glad to, uh, to, uh, to answer uh, during the Q&A. But here in the middle, this forcing, in my opinion, is the most important uh, statistics for a developing junior player, which today, when you watch a tennis match on TV and the statistics that you watch, uh, from the apps that are available. No one is actually um, uh, doing the statistics for the forcing shots. And in my opinion, that's the most important statistic for a developing junior. Can I please have my last slide, please? And then obviously a uh, junior player has its support system. Uh, their support system is basically their parents, their coach and their friends. And if that support system is not balanced, no matter how talented that child is, that player will not reach his or her potential unless the player support system is well balanced. And again, there are many ways uh, uh, that that can be done, but basically the roles of each one of these, each one of these segments of the support system needs to be defined. So that the coach is actually in charge of the on-court development. The parents are in charge of the growth of the child into a mature human being. And of course, the, child, the, the child's friends are also very important as a part of the support system. Once again, we can also talk about that if anyone has any questions. But that's basically, Fernando, what I like to present here, which is basically the tenets of uh, my uh, Tournament Tough Online course that uh, we are going to be launching this summer now. Yeah.
Very good one. Very good one. Uh, let's let's introduce now Gregor. Gregor Fico uh, is the national director of Colovan Professional Paddle Coach Association. Uh, he is a level V ATP certificate, GPTCA certified tennis coach. He's co-founder of Be Your Own Coach Program. And also he has a lot of different courses and platform to develop tennis players. Thank you to be with us, Gregor, uh, on the live panel about what it takes to be a junior to pro. Uh, hi to everybody. First of all, I would like to say hello to all the coaches who are here. Uh, we are a big family and I'm really honored to be here with you and I'm thanking so much to Fernando, you, your team and GPTCA uh, to have a, such a beautiful event and bring together all those special people. So uh, yeah, I was uh, thinking how I can present a little bit of our uh, methodology. So uh, practically what I what I put together, it's uh, based on my experience in the last uh, 20 years of coaching and uh, I'm still thinking about what it's what is the let's say the most effective way of uh, teaching to approach the students the the tennis players and just trying to be in step of a time uh, we all know that the currently generations are different in 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 a way of thinking in in their mindset and also in their uh, skills than it was like 10 or 15 years ago so uh they are living in a different lifestyle. They are uh, also, uh, they live with a different focus than, than we were living when we were their age. So uh, it's, it's more about their uh, different kind of attention spam, which is all connected to the, to the digital area. Um, and um, what I recognize is that uh, we changed in, in our team, in our academy, uh, the approach much more to... Um, let's say to kinesthetic uh, approaching, uh, just trying to reach uh, their insight, their uh, as much as much uh, connections, neural neuromotor connections possible, and uh, less talking on the court, uh, also less time demonstrating. It's uh, it's all because of uh, their shorter attention span. So maybe uh, let's start with the with the presentation. So the topic is feel aware and master those are also uh, three steps that um, i think i'm following the mostly uh, on the court yeah so uh, i'll try to introduce different ways of uh, learning and coaching uh, from our experience where we want to achieve the possibility of continuous progress and development of potential in the long in the long run so the presentation it's uh, based more on a uh, way of teaching and learning, uh, not just uh, technically, technically, but uh, can also be uh, technically or uh, competitive. Uh, maybe more of my slides today are uh, of, of a technical development in the beginning uh, stage of uh, players. Um, so what, what we try to achieve, it's, uh, it's active learning. Um, we are trying to really put the tennis players uh, to be as most active uh, and experience uh, the practice as, as possible. So we are trying to uh, use different levels of uh, teaching and learning, not staying on the same on the same level. It can be a level of uh, athletic development, a level of technical or tactical development. Um, so changing the levels of teaching, uh, what I mean by here, it's uh, um, trying to always reach the highest possible level that we can offer. Uh, if, if, for example, player has a more athletic potential than the um, mental potential, let's say we are trying to work on a higher level in, uh, in, in, in one and on another level in, in other one. So we are trying to balance all, all different kinds of uh, fields, uh, athletic, technical, tactical, uh, to have as much complete and balanced uh, development. Um, yeah, we are trying to avoid the teaching where it's uh, about only passively listening and where our, us coaches are the one speaking too much on the court or just demonstrating. We don't want to be the one to hit balls more time than the student. We don't want, we don't want to be the one that are more engaged in, uh, 
in hitting or playing than the than the uh, student and uh, we try to keep them engaged and solving problems on the court all the time so uh, that's also about the the ksa it's about three learning domains it's about knowledge skills and attitudes those fields uh, are the ones that we are trying to um, to touch all the time it's uh, it's about the knowledge uh, what they have already and what we're trying to achieve it's about their skills um, and, and it's about the attitude so we're trying to reach all the all the fields together uh, the first the first about uh, going from field to awareness to master it's it's about feel this is what i what we try to do to make player feel uh, inside what is happening we call it mental feeling it's it's about generalized bodily consciousness or physical sense uh, so a lot of times we are asking ourselves should it be like from conscious to unconscious uh, methodology or from unconscious to conscious back but what we really think is that those two are uh, are very connected and sometimes we we go out from one and we go more into into another and uh, first we want to achieve that mental feeling so they have a inside consciousness or a sense what they are doing and then the the next one of course it's um, uh, if we try to create a feel it's uh, it's about percepting the events within the body so um, for example, if we are uh, developing something technically like stance, uh, I, we believe much more if, uh, if we demonstrate the stance by ourselves, like coaches, uh, it's not so effective than, for example, if I'm rolling the ball on the floor and the player is stopping with the outside foot, you know, uh, stopping the ball with the outside foot, picking it up and playing the ball. I'm not sure if you can imagine that, but uh, what, I, what I try to uh, explain here is that we are trying to put them all the time in situation to be as much engaged as possible. Uh, we also try to achieve that um, they, they, they get the experience. Um, so it's like self-contained con, 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 self phenomenal experience and physical sensation of touch. And then from feel, first, when we, are, when we worked on, on their feel, we believe that then they are more, much more aware what is happening. So the awareness, it's a state of being conscious of something and also have a wide range of behavioral actions. So when we see that they are reacting on something that we are trying to do, either it's something uh, in movement or something with a racket or something with uh, mental emotion or something like that, when the action are happening, then we believe this is a, uh, the awareness is bigger. And when the awareness is there, uh, this is great because then they are able to directly know and already feel. Um, and then after the awareness uh, comes the mastering. So if we want them to be their own coaches, to have the inner coach in themselves, uh, first we have to go through the awareness. So the mastering, the master level begins, we believe, when uh, they have the advanced or expert level of ability in a certain task or activity. And they, they, they also can pass knowledge and instruction about it to the others. So we are sometimes we are changing roles on the court. The players become coaches and the coaches become players. And uh, then we can also see what is their level of knowledge. And uh, yeah, they are also masters where when they are creating new knowledge and, and pass it on. So, uh, yeah. was good. Let me, let me tell to all the attendees that uh, our... Uh, our panel, you can make questions and uh, we will uh, share with you now the presentation of Robert Davis. After that, you can prepare your question to Carlos, to Gregor, and all the, all the responses that we can do. Bring it on. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you uh, for, for allowing me to share uh, this presentation from Juniors to Pros. And let me just start by thanking the team at Seagal Institute for organizing uh, the second annual World Tennis Conference. And there's just so much behind the scenes to get this together. So thank you. And then let me also just say hello to Grigor Fico from Slovenia, my, our colleague on the panel, who's doing a wonderful job of promoting tennis there. And my longtime friend, Carlos Goffi. And for those of you that don't have a copy of his uh, classic book, Tournament Tough, it is a really good tool uh, for working with juniors and helping them to get to the pros, which is the subject of this, uh, this discussion. Well, let me, let me get started here. Uh, the title of, of uh, my presentation is 
the importance of a character-driven coach. Uh, three things that we can learn from Tony and Rafael Nadal's 21 Grand Slam titles. And I, I, I can't uh, state enough how important it is for developing character in the juniors. You know, we normally get them after the age of 18 or in the early 20s, and it's, it's so difficult to change behavior patterns uh, at this time. And, you know, in pro tennis, uh, uh, you, when you lose time and waste opportunities, uh, development uh, is slowed down. So let me just uh, state again, make no mistake, coaches. If, if, if a player has issues with character, it will have a negative impact on his uh, natural tennis abilities uh, to, to maximize those as a professional. We see it all the time. And, and let's, let's look at all, uh, Rafael Nadal's, this last Grand Slam that he won at the Australian Open. My goodness, there's just so many wonderful things that we could talk about in that match. And, you know, John McEnroe was quoted as saying that it's the greatest comeback in a Grand Slam final since he lost to Yvonne Lindell after being up two sets and, and a break. But there are three things that I, I believe that we could take away from this and that as coaches, uh, we can learn uh, from. Number one, loyalty. You know, Rafa has been quoted as saying that he has never fired anyone. And when we look at his team today, it's essentially the same team that he started with. Uh, yes, Tony has stepped away uh, after guiding Rafa for all those years and then 15 years of traveling on the tour. That is hard. It, and, and listen, it's, it's if, when you consider how many Grand Slam finals uh, that Rafa played in, those 15 years are hard on a coach. And so, but the rest of the team is intact. I mean, he's had the, you know, Rafael, he's had uh, the same physio, the same strength and conditioning, the same age at Carlos Costa, Benito, Barbadillo Press, the same uh, press, uh, Carlos Moya, Francisco Roy. Uh, and then, of course, he just added his longtime friend, Mark Lopez. And, and here's what I take away from that uh, when you see the loyalty is that Rafael Nadal does not blame others for his poor performances. And, you know, that says a lot about him. And Rafael has been quoted as saying that, you know, he's won so much with these, these, this, his team. Why would he change when he loses? It must be him, not them. Eon Tiriak shared with me that the hardest part of coaching is getting the player to accept responsibility for poor performances. And it's critical to, uh, in order to learn from losses and improve, that the player has to accept responsibility and not blame others. And, you know, we can tell uh, by, by Rafa's loyalty to his entire team that when he looks in the mirror, when things are not going well, rather than looks to, to blame others. Number two, respect for everyone. Now, this is the very foundation of Tony Nadal's coaching ethos. It's a non-negotiable. If any of you have spent time around Tony Nadal, you will know this. This is the mainstay, um, respect. And, and Rafa is the same. And I can tell you from having observed him uh, in the locker room, in the players' lounge, or in transport, uh, he treats everyone the way he wants to be treated. He's respectful to everyone. And, and I don't find it a coincidence that our, two of our greatest players in the history Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal had dominated the Stefan Edberg Sportsmanship Awards. Ro uh, Roger has won an incredible 13, and, and Rafa has won four. And, you know, it just goes to prove that you can be a great uh, competitor, a great fighter, you can be intense, but you can also be a sportsman, and you can also treat everyone on the court with respect. You know, it's become a trend over the last 10 or, or so years, 15 years, uh, to really take it out and, and to, uh, for players to insult umpires, to insult uh, people in the crowd, and, and even insult their coaches and ask for their coaches to leave the stadium. Yes, we've always had colorful characters in the past, and, and I'm sure Carlos Goffey could tell some stories there. 
However, uh, there is a line that has been crossed more frequently over the years of being disrespectful and insulting the person. Uh, and, and I think Rafael Nadal has shown us that you can have a discussion with the umpire and do it in a, uh, a respectful and sportsmanship way. Number three, Rafa's competitive integrity. Now, we know what a competitor is, but he has what I call competitive integrity. And let me explain. Being a great competitor does not start with the first point of the match, but instead with the first step on the practice court. It's not about training great at times uh, to get to the pro tour and to be successful as a professional. It's training great all the time. Now, look, let's be honest. There are times when players are just not feeling their best on the practice court and in training. And, you know, but given that intensity, it, it, it given if they're not 100% physically, then they're given it emotionally or mentally. It's, it's not throwing rackets. It's not uh, smashing balls. It's not tanking in practice. It's not the, no, it's doing, it's having the integrity as a professional tennis player to do your best every time you step on the, the court. And, and Carlos, I know you've had the privilege to work under Harry Hotman. And Hotman was famous for his one bounce rule in training, which was very simple. All players had to run 100% for every ball every time, no matter how far away the ball was or what the score was at the time. And if a player did not do that, then they're tossed out of training. It didn't matter if they were the best player in the academy or the least. He was very consistent with the one bounce rule. Um, Bob Brett, the, the late Bob Brett, was also known for, for his uh, competitive integrity and practices. And if you've been around Bob and when he was on the court with, with his players, uh, he demanded integrity in training. Well, let's get back to Rafa. You know, I, I just say that what, how good was his attitude at the Australian at Open after losing the second set in the finals versus Medvedev? I mean, my goodness, if there was ever a time to shout or, or, or get angry at something or smash a racket, we could, he could be forgiven. I mean, he, he served for the set. He had, he had probably two or three chances to win that set. And, and going down two sets to love to Medvedev in, in, in a final at, at this stage, wow. But no, he kept his cool. He stayed positive, And he found a way to turn the match midway in the third. And, and we'll, we'll circle back to that in just a second uh, to explain it. But he did it again in Indian Wells against Sebastian Corda. He's down 5-2 in the third. And, and Sebastian served for the match twice. Let me read from a quote, uh, please, if, if you will, that Rafa made following his comeback against Porta, which it was also applied uh, to his match in the Australian Open Finals. And I'm going to paraphrase his quote here, but, but quoting Rafa, the reason why I have been fighting during all my tennis career, or I have the, the right self-control or the right attitude or fighting spirit, whatever you, you call it, it's very simple, Nadal said. Because I grew up with this kind of education. My uncle, my family never allowed me to break a racket, never allowed me to say bad words or throw or tank a match or practice. Probably when I was a child, they didn't care much about winning or losing. They cared more about how I behaved on the court, good times and bad. The most important thing was the education and the fact that I grew with values, with the right values. And to continue with this quote, the last part here is, if I went on the court and created a circus or broke a racket or lost control, I would not be playing the next tournament without a doubt. That's probably why I have this mentality. And, and coaches, I can't stress enough uh, the importance of getting this established at a young age. And I know coaches and the pros that before they even start with the player, and I'll, I'll call out one right now, Roger Rashid. He has what he calls the non-negotiable meeting, and he puts it in black and white, that there are a few non-negotiables that he will not tolerate, and the player has to agree to it, and it's put in the contract before they even start the first week of practice. 
Uh, and I've heard from other coaches these. And, you know, coaches, I understand. Look, I get it. When you're, especially when you're a young coach or, or you're not financially independent, you get opportunities, you want to do it, you want to succeed. And maybe even that player is doing you a favor by bringing you along as a coach. You feel like you've got to hold your tongue. You, you're not able to say exactly what you really feel. I get it. I've been there before. I think we all have when we were starting out. But I can guarantee you this, coaches. The players may not like you at the time when you hold them accountable for anything but the best of, of competitive integrity or attitude or respect, but they will respect you in the long run. And you have a choice. Do you want to be liked in the moment or respect for the duration? In conclusion, I believe that having a coach who is character driven, who puts the person first, and the tennis player second, who has the wisdom to understand that behavior matters, conduct counts. Yes, winning is important in professional tennis, but winning is not the most important thing in the junior ranks. Developing the character and shaping the young child to become a great person is what will give that young player the best opportunity to also be the best player he can be and win more matches in the long run. Thank you for your time. Thank you to my colleagues, Grigor and, 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 and Carlos. And thank you to the World Tennis Conference for the opportunity to share my opinions. Best wishes and God bless. Thank you very much, Robert. Uh, just uh, it's time for the question and answer. Be prepared for that, please send us. There is a question coming from Carlos. But before that, before to do the question, remember, you can watch all the presentation, even this panel, until May 1st. It means 35 days more. You can watch as many times as they want. You can replay. You can uh, take notes, stop, and start again. One of the key aspects of the conference, and that, that's why we create uh, our World Tennis Conferences, to bring the best coaches in the world that you can have a better programs in your day-by-day -day process. Uh, let's, let's do the next question, which is coming for Carlos. Carlos Hagan is asking you, I would like to ask you, what is your suggestion for the athletes playing college tennis in USA? What kind of path should follow to become professional? especially top-ranking players in ITA, in Inter-College inter Tennis Association. What is the road? Well, the, uh, um, thank you very much for this question because it's an excellent question. Even though the, uh, the theme of our panel here is from juniors to pros, I actually, as I said in the beginning, I am a proponent of college tennis as the immediate goal from a junior tennis player. And I realize that Europeans and Latin Americans don't have that option uh, because we don't have uh, that kind of education system in Europe, in Latin America, or in Asia. But, but I was one of the pioneers of my country in Brazil in 1970 to start college tennis here in America. And, um, and um, it's been, and it was one of my best four years of my life because uh, uh, here I was, uh, you know, independent from, uh, uh, from all of the, the upbringing that um, all of us tennis players have in Europe and Latin America, you know, going from home to school to club. And then when you finish uh, your junior years, you either go to college or you turn pro at 17. And I don't believe that um, uh, uh, the vast majority of uh, junior players are ready to turn pro after junior tennis. In fact, I will go on the limb by saying here that uh, we have only 100 professional tennis players in the world. You can have 5,000 uh, ranked players in the ATP and the WTA, but 4,900 of them are pretending to be pros. They're playing the second division, the third division, and they're not playing the top tournament. So really, there are only 100 professional players. And, uh, and the jump from a junior tennis to this, to become a top 100 player in the world, you have to be one of these phenoms like the Rafa Nadal's and the Federer's and the John McEnroe's of the world and, 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 uh, and so forth. But, but those guys that are the phenoms, you know, they will land in the top 100 by the time they're 16, 17 years old, uh, they will land it with parachute 
you know, they got a, a wild card here or there to play a challenger. They win a challenger or they got a wild card to play in a ATP event in their country and they ended up in the semifinals and they're in the top 100. Well, these guys do not have to go to college if they, because they're already there, the top 100. They're professionals at that point. Now, don't forget that John McEnroe got to the semifinals of Wimbledon in 1977 as a 17 years old and then went to college to play one year in Stanford instead of turning pro. And with a very lucrative sort of a potential contracts in those days, and he chose to go back to college. Why? Because he realized back then that he needed that kind of experience to grow physically, mature himself in order to go back and, and be able to handle a professional tour that we all know how demanding that is uh, uh, in, in for those tennis players that are on the tour. So, so what is the path going to college tennis? Well, I happen to have my son now, who is a college coach in the United States. He's the, he's the coach at the University of South Carolina. And, um, and I've been following college tennis uh, very closely because of my association with my son and, and his team. Uh, the depth of college tennis in America is incredible. For your information, for those of you around the world that do not know, the country with most players in the top 100 of the ATP ranking is college tennis. That's the country with most players ranked in the top 100 players in the, in, in the ATP rankings are former college players. So let's don't take that very lightly because there are a lot of people that think that, well, no, you know, the kid is 16 years old, he goes to college, he will not make it into the pros because he's going to college. Totally wrong assumption. In fact, it's completely the opposite. For a kid to come into play for a college tennis in America, it's basically a blessing for that junior player, no matter how good he is, other than being a phenom, as we talked about it. But 99% of the junior players, they should think in terms of the path of going to college tennis in America. Look, they've got doctors, they've got beautiful facilities, they've got physios, they've got uh, equipment, they've got great coaching, they've got great depth in, 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 in competition. I mean, the comp if you watch a college match uh, uh, being played, it's amazing the excitement, the amount of, uh, of, um, of uh, uh, the, the, the players are totally into it. It gives the players a way out of the individuality of the sport and belonging to a team, which also helps them when they all go play as an individual. So what is the path? It's too long of a, of a path for me to be able to explain to you right now, but there is a path that one has to start learning how to get in contact with the, uh, with the coaches because I will close with that. There is a governing body that is called the NCAA, National Collegiate Athletic Association. That is basically the government that controls all the athletics in a university. And there are rules that these coaches have to, uh, to follow. And so anybody that is interested in coming to play college tennis in America should start learning about those rules from the NCAA. For instance, in men's, a coach can only give away four and a half scholarships and he's got 10 players in the squad. So he has to be able to, to manage four and a half scholarships with 10 players in the squad. When the girls, they have eight scholarships and they have 10 girls in the squad and so on. But I wanna close by saying, all coaches that are listening to us right now, please think college tennis seriously as a way of, uh, of uh, promoting the next pathway for your juniors, wherever you are in the world. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, Hakan, which is doing the, uh, the, the, the question, is saying hello to you, Carlos, and to Gregor, and he is from Turkey. Uh, we have another another question uh, for both of you. We have a couple of minutes more in our panel. It's coming from Mate from Hungary. Uh, my question is, how does training on a daily basis change from junior to pro? More time on the court, more fitness, more video analysis? Thank you. I'll let my colleague Gregor take a crack at that. Come on, Gregor. This is a very good question. In my opinion, it, it all depends on um, from which level you start with uh, junior to pro. It's uh, and, and, and from which, what is the situation with the player? Is, is, it, uh, is the player still like in, 
let's say is the player in training phase like there is or there is something to clean like for for example we can clean the technique and also we can clean some body movements uh, some patterns uh, that are maybe uh, not helping or is it a way where we are just uh, updating the system let's say that we are adding uh, some quality of the ball or like we are adding some some new um, maybe some changes in the mindset on the court so uh, i think it's very important the age where they they uh, like carlos said before when they are turning from the building phase to uh, the um, uh, competitive phase and then from competitive phase to the professional one i think those three blocks are are the general one and we should be very aware what we can do with them what we can do in each every uh, phase so i think it's not only in uh, like uh, adding the quantity the court on time or the weight uh, in fitness uh, but it's also about being smart to train being um, smart in uh, in the way uh, that maybe player doesn't need to spend more time on the court, but he needs to spend more time to um, change some uh, something in the body, and then also the other things will uh, will go. So it, it's it's more about um, getting getting to know player in, from which position are we starting with the player, and then also what what is the current possibilities for him or for her to do. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gregor. Carlos, you can add that something? Well, it's, it's very simple. You know, it's, I call it effective training in my course online. And, uh, and effective training uh, basically means, uh, as, as, as Gregor said, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And uh, as uh, Robert Davis even mentioned, uh, you know, in his uh, 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 opening in there about the intensity that uh, Rafa Nadal practices. And, and I can attest to that because when I was, were you know traveling in a tour with uh, and 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 with the likes of uh, John and, and McEnroe and uh, Patrick McEnroe and uh, during practice matches, uh, wherever we were around the world, when, uh, whether they were practicing with uh, Jimmy Connors, whether they were practicing with Agassi, you know the that one hour that those players are on the court, there's no chit chatting, there is no thinking about anything else. They go in there and they manage that one hour to the maximum possible ability so that they can feel prepared to play a match. This is what juniors fail. And, uh, you know, and, and I'll go back to my original presentation here is that, um, you know, it's about the 50 minutes of the hour that the ball is not in play. I think that there's too much, uh, you know, the reason why we published the book in 1984, and back and I thought that up until that point, there was too much technique being talked about. You know, bring the racket here, bring the racket there. And no, 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 no. We believe that tennis is more about this mind against that mind. And that's what tournament up the book was about. Well, since then, with the technology and sports science and everything else that is got, you know, that, that came about, what's happening is, is that we're going back to pre-1980s again, you know, thinking too much. We're like paralysis by analysis, the way I look at it. There's yeah. too much talking about forehands and backhands and turning positioning here and there. You know, I mean, the great players, they don't spend time doing that. They basically spend time thinking about what matters to win a match. What matters to win a match is basically the competition between this mind and that mind. Because let's face it, no matter what the ranking is across the net, if you take their confidence down, or if, you take, if you can control their confidence level down, you can beat them. It's all about controlling the confidence level of the opposition. And nobody talks about that. You know, everybody's thinking about a big forehand or a big forehand to serve. And all they know it's not about that. It's about, okay, the, the, the opponent is confident. What do I have to do? I got to force them to error because it's the only way I can drop their confidence down is by forcing them to error. But these things need to be talked about when the kid is young in that phase two. Phase one, forget it. Because phase one winning in phase one is basically losing less. It's about, it's about not missing. And, 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 and that's not the same tennis that you play on phase two. Phase two is not about not missing. Phase two is about winning points with your weapons. So if you, if you know, the kid is winning too much or losing less too much in the phase one, that kid's not going to progress you know, into an adult tennis because he's not developing weapons because he's just, a, he's just pushing the ball across the net. 
And so, so the game is between one mind and the other. Look, the game has evolved. Yes, equipment. You got all those wooden rackets behind you out there, Fernando. You know, I played with all, quite a few of them, as you know, in my old days. Well, what changed then? The equipment. The equipment from wooden rackets to the larger rackets and the stepper rackets changed just two departments in the game. One is return of serve, and the other one is passing shots. Why? Because the bigger rackets are stiffer, they return power. And those wooden rackets behind you out there absorb power. So that, that fundamentally changed the returns and passing shots. But it didn't change serves. People think that, you know, with the new rackets, you're serving bigger. No. I mean, Colin Dibley in 1971 served at 155 miles an hour in Forest Hills with a little Max Fly Dunlop. Why? Because the ball doesn't weigh anything when you're hitting a, a serve. The ball is a feather. So it doesn't matter, you know, what, what kind of record you have. If you hit that ball in the sweet spot of a wooden racket that was the size of a ping pong, you still can develop 150 miles an hour with the timing of your, of your, of your motion. So effective training means when you leave that phase one into phase two, it's about simulating the pressures that you're going to find when you're playing a match. And people, kids and coaches do not practice, do not be implementing practices exactly simulations of the match. So you practice one way and then you're going to go play a match. Guess what? You choke because you don't know how to play a 30, 40 point. You've been hitting forehands, cross courts and down the lines for 55 minutes of that hour. So it, 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 it needs to change. What is the, why do you practice? You practice to do well in tournaments. Okay. Well, then let's practice exactly like we play tournaments. That's my philosophy. Very good. Very good, and we can uh, talk by hours, but we have to finalize our panel. Carlos, Gregor, to Robert also, thank you to be at the second episode of the World Tennis Conference where by GPTCA, SI, and the ATP. The purpose of the conference, like I said before, is to bring the best coaches to share with you all the knowledge that you can change and transform your day-by-day -day process. Let's do that. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Gregor. Thank you, Robert. Until next time. It's a pleasure being here with you guys. Have a great day. Thank you. You're all welcome to Slovenia. Carlos, I'm waiting for you and Fernando. We would love to see you there. Take care. All right. Bye-bye now.